So we're at, say, Philippians chapter 3, we're in verses 1 to 11. But, so over, over the last few weeks, we've been, we've been really looking at, at the good examples of people who lived faithfully for Jesus Christ. But as we move into chapter 3, actually there's a sort of a change of direction, a change of focus in all of this. And, and we see that not every example is necessarily good for us. So in fact, circum, circumstances and people can rob us of joy, actually, and so can things. And it's this thief that Paul talks about in chapter 3. But actually, before we get into the detail of this particular section, we're looking at the first 11 verses today, it's important that we see the whole picture, the whole message of this chapter. So first, um, verses 1 to 11, it looks at Paul's past. Takes, it basically it describes Paul as the accountant as he opens his life, as he looks at what wealth he has within his life. The key word is, I count. So we get then, next week we're looking at verses 12 to 16, which is Paul's present, which is looking at Paul as the athlete. Again, the key phrase is, I run. And then in verses 17 to 21, at the end of this chapter, it's looking at Paul's future. Paul looks at himself as the alien, the foreigner in a strange land. And the key word here is I, I look. But this chapter is describing Paul and describing his spiritual mind. Now, the majority of people live and go through life with an earthly mind, but the spiritual person's mind is based and is filled with heavenly things. So the key I guess the key verse for this chapter, chapter 3, verse 20, it says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the person who has this spiritual mind looks on the things of this world from a heavenly viewpoint, from this heavenly perspective, and that makes all the difference to them. You will remember we've mentioned already that the Philippians would have understood this concept really, really well because Philippi was a Roman colony and its citizens were actually Roman citizens, so therefore they came under Roman law. And in the same way, the church of Jesus Christ is an earthly colony of heaven. And our citizenship is in heaven, and we should look at this earth from a heavenly perspective, from this heavenly viewpoint. So let's get into these first 11 verses. So we're chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. Let's read them first. It says this, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same thing to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of flesh. For it is we who are circumcised, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for such confidence." If anybody thinks that he has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic rights, righteousness, faultless, but whatever was 
to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. So as we've said, the, the, key, the key, I guess, word of this, these first 11 verses of chapter 3 is I count. And if we were to take a text for this morning, it would be verse 7, which says, But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now, in the Greek, there are two different words that are used for this word count. The basic idea is, is pretty much the same, to be fair. It is to evaluate or to assess. It was Socrates who said, the unexamined life is not worth living. There's, I guess, certainly some truth in that, in that. And yet few people actually sit down to seriously weigh or to evaluate the values that control their direction or their decisions within life. The result is that many people end up becoming slaves either to things or to, to other people. As a result, we do not experience Christian joy. Now, of course, these things aren't necessarily bad things. Certainly in Paul's case, they weren't bad things. In fact, before he came to know Jesus Christ, what he was doing was actually very, very commendable. See, when Paul was young, he was actually pretty sure about himself. He came from the very best family. He knew the Bible back to front. He was disciplined in law-keeping. He lived a righteous life. He was defender of the religion of his fathers. He gave his whole life to God. But none of these things brought either satisfaction to him or actually give or even brought acceptance with God. Actually, things were much worse than that. He was utterly and completely wrong. It was as if Paul had just sat an exam and he's walked out of the examination room and, he, and he's thinking, you know what, I've just aced that test. I've got a, an A star, no problem at all. But to his shock, he discovers on the Damascus road that God has awarded him a big fat F. And like religious people even today, he had enough morality to keep himself out of trouble, but not enough to get him into heaven, not enough to reach God's perfect standard. And it certainly wasn't bad things that were keeping Paul away from Jesus Christ, but it meant that for him to come to Jesus, 
He had to lose his religion in order to find his salvation. The full story of Paul's encounter with Jesus is recorded for us in Acts chapter 9. Do have a read added later on. This just amazing descriptive conversion experience of Paul where he literally has seen the light and he, he's knocked off his horse and Jesus speaks to him and his life is transformed in that moment. But what about you? I wonder what are you relying on? Is it your lovely, respectable family? Perhaps it's, it's your fine Christian heritage or your morality, or maybe your giving, or your involvement within church, or perhaps it's your Bible knowledge. Maybe you know your Bible back to front, just like Paul did, or your prayer life. Maybe that's just even that feeling of just knowing God's presence when you sing your praises to Him. And God says, all of these things, you stack them all up together, and they are literally graded as an F. Not bad things in themselves, but in terms of trying to reach acceptability with God, all of these things all together are just a big, fat F. They are worthless and they are useless. In fact, God thinks of these things. It doesn't make God happy. It makes him sad. And what we do, all our efforts to try and reach God's perfect standards will never get us into heaven. And we must stop and examine our hearts and our lives. And if we do, you might just get a shock. Just as Paul got a shock, because when he stopped and examined his life, he found two types of righteousness. He found a work-based righteousness. All those things, all those religious activities he'd been doing up to that moment. And then he found a faith-based righteousness. And to his shock, he discovered that only faith righteousness was acceptable to God. So in verses 1 to 6, we're going to look at what he means by work-based righteousness. And then in verse um, 7 to 11, it's faith-based righteousness. And Paul talks a lot about himself here, but actually he's also warning these believers, these people in Philippi. He's warning them. He's warned them before, and now he warns them again. He says, watch out for the dogs. Watch out for evildoers. Watch out for the mutilators of the flesh. This is a triple warning. Paul is serious about this. He wants them to take notice. The question is, who is he talking about? From the very beginning of the gospel, the gospel came initially to the Jews. And if we want to understand who Paul is referring to in terms of these, this triple um, accusation against these people, we've got to have a little bit of understanding of the, um, the history of the church up to that particular moment. So from the very beginning of the gospel, it initially came to the Jews. So the first seven um, chapters of the book of Acts is speaking about how God deals with Jewish believers. Then in Acts chapter 8, the message went to the Samaritans. Now that didn't cause too much trouble because the Samaritans are partly Jewish anywhere, anyway. But when, when, when Peter then goes to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, there is uproar. 
because the Gentiles become Christians without, first of all, becoming Jews. This was a completely new thing for the church at that particular time. So Peter's called into headquarters, and he's, there's, he's asked questions to explain his actions. When he tells them that it was God who had directed him to preach to the Gentiles, that seems to be, the matter seems to be settled at that moment. But then when Paul, following Peter's example, on his first missionary journey, goes straight to the Gentiles, it wasn't long before the strict Jewish believers are actually out to oppose Paul's ministry. This disagreement again caused another conference to be called in Jerusalem. So read about it in Acts chapter 15. And as a result of this, Paul was approved to go to the Gentiles. This was a victory for the gospel, a victory for the grace of God. It meant that Gentiles didn't have to become Jews before they could become Christians. In fact, it affects us today how different the church would have looked if, if that had, hadn't happened. It would look radically different to how it looks, at, looks like today. But of course, that's not the end of it. Because there's still dissenters, there's still false teachers who are following Paul around. They're trying to steal converts of Paul. They're actually trying to steal whole churches away from Paul with a mixture of teaching of both law, of things we must do, and grace, God, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul wants Philippians to beware of these Jewish false teachers, these people who are robbing the people of joy. He uses three terms to describe them, none of which are complimentary, by the way. He calls them dogs. Now, an Orthodox Jew would often refer to a Gentile as a dog, and Paul is sort of turning this back on them. He's not so much using the name to try and offend them, though I'm pretty sure he did offend them, but he's describing their behavior like dogs. They're snapping at Paul's heels. They're following him around. They're, they're going from place to place to, to sort of barking out this false teaching. They're troublemakers. They're, they're trying to spread this, this disease, this dangerous disease through the church at that particular time. The second thing he, he calls them is evildoers. These men taught that sinners were saved by faith plus good works. So especially the work of the law. But Paul actually says to them that good works are really evil because these good deeds are only performed to try and glorify the person. It's about me looking good and looking better, not to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, no one can be saved by good works or by religious acts. Again, it's only faith in Jesus Christ alone. And a Christian's good works are to come out of the result of faith, not, not on the basis of our salvation. The third thing he calls them is mutilators. Again, there's a little bit of a, I guess, a sarcastic joke or sort of tongue-in-cheek, um, I guess, pun on the word circumcised. The word circumcision literally means a mutilation. But these false teachers were insisting that in order to be acceptable to God, Gentiles, first of all, must follow the Jewish laws, including circumcision, this ancient mark that, that someone belongs and is part of God's people. However, Paul teaches that Christians 
actually they are the true people of God. They are the truly circumcised without having actually a physical sign on their bodies. In fact, an outward mark is not needed because what is needed is God to change our hearts. It's an inward mark of God's Spirit. So whether it be circumcision or in more modern terms, whether it be baptism or communion or tithing or actually any other religious practice, it cannot save a person. Again, only faith in the Lord Jesus Christ can save someone. And unlike people who put their trust in religion or in their own deeds, genuine believers, genuine Christians will worship God by the Spirit of God. It's through Jesus Christ, through his death on the cross, through his resurrection. But as we come to worship, as we've done this morning, as we come to bring our pleasing worship to God, we come without the trappings of religious ritual or ceremony because the Spirit of God lives in your life. In fact, Jesus himself said in John chapter 4, he's speaking to a woman by a well, and he says to her, a time is coming, in fact, has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kinds of worshipers that the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. The second thing of a genuine believer is that they put no confidence in the flesh, no confidence in the natural. Now, if you put your trust in your own ability or in your own efforts, you will be lost forever. And we need to know that, that our lives are actually graded as an F, as a fail. Every, the very, very best that you could possibly ever do gets no more than an F brings to the third thing, which is so important, glories in Christ Jesus. And that exam that we get an F in, we need to remember and to know that Jesus has taken that exam, that he's passed it completely. In fact, the one that we could never possibly have passed, he got 100% perfection. And we must adore him forever. Paul knows what he's talking about, perhaps more than anybody knows. He knows from his own experience how hopeless it was to try and attain salvation by good works. Paul is very honest as he examines his own life. He becomes an auditor. He, 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 he opens up his life. He opens the books of his life to see where his wealth is. And he discovers he's bankrupt, absolutely bankrupt, despite the fact that he's born into a pure Hebrew family. He's the best of the best. His human heritage was one to be so proud of. In fact, measured against his standard, he should have passed with flying colors. In terms of the law, he's a Pharisee. He's reached the very summit of religious experience, the highest place a Jew could ever possibly hope to achieve. He was orthodox. He fulfilled the religious duties faithfully. Paul was blameless. He kept the law and traditions perfectly. 
doesn't even stop there. He goes even further because he is defender of the faith. He persecutes the followers of Jesus Christ, his enemies in that particular moment. He was so zealous in his persecution of the church. This guy is so, so sincere and so wrong. And how did Paul get to that point? Well, his problem was this. He was using the wrong measuring stick. He was comparing himself to the standards of men, not to the standards of God. So when he looks at himself and he compares himself to those around us, he looks impressive. He looks very, very righteous indeed. Until one day he saw himself in comparison to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was then he had to change his evaluation and values to abandon these works of righteousness and to take on the righteousness of Jesus. Now notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say this Jewish law looked pretty good and, and, and then when the, when the gospel came along, well, the gospel looked a little bit better than the law and then I decided to leave all those things behind me. No, he says that he considered all of these other things to be rubbish, absolute rubbish in comparison. And after all of this, after all, all of this just led him to become an enemy of Jesus Christ. In fact, he was putting his trust in a system that could never possibly deliver righteousness to him. Perhaps if you've come from a religious background, I wonder how do you view that, that episode within your life? Do, do you have a warm feeling about it? Do you, or do you recognize it for what it really is? A death trap that can never truly deliver what really matters. And Paul comes to the conclusion with actually a strange piece of gospel mathematics. The question is this, if Paul loses everything, what does he have left? The answer, everything that matters. Everything that matters. And Paul leaves his work-based righteousness and he turns to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And verses 7 to 11 describes that experience for Paul. See, when Paul met the risen Christ on the Damascus road, he put his trust in him and he became a child of God. This was a miracle of grace. He realized the few, how futile his good work and how sinful his claims of righteousness actually were. And, and Paul lost something, but he gained so much more. Verse 7 tells us what Paul lost. Paul was a, had a great reputation. He's a scholar, a religious leader. He was proud of his Jewish heritage, of his religious achievements. In fact, all of these things were really valuable to him. In fact, it brought him many friends. He was, he was even admired for his great zeal. But when he measured these treasures against the Lord Jesus Christ and what he had to offer, it was insignificant. It was no more than rubbish in comparison to Jesus. In fact, his treasures may have brought some glory to himself personally, but it did not bring glory to Jesus Christ. It only fueled his selfishness and his pride. And Paul gave it up. He gave all of it up. But look what Paul gains. He gains 
everything that he needs. In fact, the words of Jim Elliot perhaps sum this up so beautifully. He says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And this was Paul's experience. Paul, he lost his religion. He lost his reputation, but he gained so much more. And in these final eight, verses eight to 11, Paul tells us what he gained, in fact, what we all gain through faith in Christ alone. The first thing is this, the knowledge of Christ. Verse 8, the knowledge of Christ. And Paul says that he knows Christ, verse 8. He also says that he wants to know Christ in verse 10. Now, how can both of these things be true? Well, I guess they can. So we, we, we say we know someone when we, we meet someone, when we, when we are introduced to them, or perhaps we just become a friend with them on Facebook. But actually, it's a very different thing when we have a close relationship with someone. As time goes by, we learn to know them better. We get to know more about them. The same thing applies to our life in Christ. If you are a Christian, you can say, I know Jesus. But at the same time, you will spend the rest of your life, in fact, you will spend all of eternity getting to know him better. You see, believing things about Jesus will never save you. In fact, it's arguable to say that the most knowledgeable believer of all is probably Satan himself. See, knowing things with your head will not change you. So what will? Well, it's the power of the Spirit of God. If, if God's power, if God's Spirit does not flow into your life and change you, you do not belong to Christ. Romans 8, 14 says, All who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. So the mark of being a son or daughter of God is divine power. It's the Spirit-filled life. It is to experience Christ's resurrection power within our lives. So, but how can we experience such power? Well, 2 Peter 1.3 perhaps gives us the answer. It says, through our knowledge of him who has called us by his glory and goodness. This is not head knowledge. There's another type of knowledge that, 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 that Paul is talking about here. To understand this, we need to actually put ourselves into a situation of powerlessness. So I want you to imagine for a moment that you are a prisoner in Afghanistan, or perhaps a hostage in Iraq, and you have lost all hope. In fact, death seems inevitable, and, and you, you've given up hope of ever seeing your family or your friends again. And then you hear that a deal has been done, that a prisoner exchange has been agreed and negotiated in the background, and you are pulled out of the line that you're led off to freedom. What happens in that moment when the guard points at you and calls you forward? It's not, it's not just knowledge. It is power. Because hope surges through your body, and in fact, it affects all of you. And in that moment, life is restored because you've been called. And divine power for life and for Christ-likeness flows from the knowledge of your calling 
in Christ. It's knowing that God has approached you and said to you, come with me, I'm going to give you life. In fact, more than that, I'm going to put my spirit to live within you. And as the spirit of God takes up center place within our lives, he is all that you need. The only knowledge that carries saving power is promised knowledge. In other words, we need to know that we have received the power for Christ-likeness and for just growth within our life when the promise comes and we know that we have been included, that this is for me. Salvation is personal. And God calls you And it's God's call over your life. Yes, it may be undeserved. Yes, it is God's grace within your life. But it's God who calls. And to live in the knowledge of Christ, you must know, you must believe that you are included. That this promise is for you. And by faith in Christ, it is. The second thing that Paul says that you gain is the righteousness of Christ. Verse 9. As a Pharisee, righteousness was a great goal for Paul. He spent all of his life trying to achieve this. In fact, he ended up only with self-righteousness. But when Paul trusted in Jesus, he lost his own righteousness and he gained the righteousness of Christ. And Paul had a good hard look at his own record, a good look at his life, and he discovered that he was spiritually bankrupt. But when he looked at the life of Jesus and Christ's record, he saw perfection. And by putting your trust in Jesus, God puts Christ's righteousness into your account. But more than that, you just... Your sins have been transferred from your account and have been placed onto Christ's account on the cross. And God promises that he will never hold those sins against you again. But like Paul, it requires that you give up your religion, your self-righteousness, you turn from your sin in repentance, and you receive his righteousness. The third thing Paul says that you gain is the fellowship of Christ. See, when Paul became a Christian, it was the end of Paul, not the beginning. It was a personal experience of Jesus Christ that so just transformed him, that so was so tremendous in his life that it just changed everything forever. See, he used to follow a set of rules and religion, but, but now... A relationship. He had a friend, a master, he had a constant companion. And Paul's declaration was Christ lives in me. Christ lives in me. But it's also a painful experience because. He also knew the privilege of suffering with Christ from the very beginning. You know, as you, as you grow in your knowledge of Jesus, as you experience his power within your life, you will come under attack from the enemy. But for Paul, 
It was all worthwhile. See, he lived for Christ. He died to himself. He picked up the cross daily, and he followed Jesus. And the result of his death, his dying to self, was spiritual resurrection. Verse 11. This caused Paul to walk in newness of life, Romans 6, verse 4. And Paul summarizes this whole experience in Galatians 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Listen, Paul gained so much more than he ever lost. And so can you. In fact, it was so great that he considered all of these other things to be absolute worthless, to be garbage in comparison to Jesus Christ. No wonder he had joy. Because his life was not dependent on the cheap things of this earth, of this world, but on the eternal values that he found in Jesus Christ. This changed his mindset, it changed his view, it changed everything about him. And Paul had this spiritual mind that meant that he could look at the things of this world from a heavenly perspective. Listen, if you live for things, if you live for money, if you live for possessions, you are, you're never going to be really happy because you'll be constantly trying to wonder, how can I protect those things? How can I keep the value of them up? How can I even make more of this money? How can I, how can I do better in all of this? But the believer with the spiritual mind who has their treasure in Christ, a treasure that can never be stolen, that can never lose its value, this is the type of accountancy that will lead to joy. And today, I urge you to take time out, to take account of your own life, to evaluate the things that really matters to you. What are those things that are so important to you? And then to take them and to compare them to Jesus Christ. See, only He can bring true joy to your life. Can I urge you, maybe it might be worth writing lists out however you, you like to, to do stuff, but get, get stuff down, just spend some time, just evaluate what is important, what matters, what, what am I putting all my hopes into at this particular moment, and then we say, and we compare them to Christ. And for some of us, we need to lose some stuff. Some of us need to lose perhaps even good stuff, stuff that actually is very commendable in many ways. We need to evaluate, to put some things down so that we can gain something that is so much more valuable, that we gain the knowledge of Christ, the righteousness of Christ, and the fellowship of Christ. Because only those things will lead us into joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and the challenge that lies within it. And Father, we, we want to run into joy. Father, we desire, Lord, to know you better. 
Lord, we want to gain, Lord, true riches that can never be lost. True value, Lord God, can never be shaken. And Father, we pray, I pray right now, Lord, Holy Spirit, just begin to work within our hearts. Father, help us, Lord, to take your word and to apply it to our lives, to take it seriously. And Father, I pray, Lord, even this week, Lord, as we, we would take time out, Lord, just to reevaluate, to examine, to look at ourselves, Lord, in comparison to you, to find, Lord, where our worth truly lies. And Father, for anything else, Lord, that is not you, Lord, Father, we would be able to put it down to find our hope and to find our value and to find our gain in you, Lord Jesus. So Holy Spirit, do a deep work. Do a work within our hearts right now. And Father, make us, make us doers of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.